Welcome to another episode of Scrubs and Soy Sauce with Mickey and Kevin. We are excited to do another episode, which I think I'm in charge of this episode. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to talk about healthcare as a healthcare professional, meaning we'll kind of discuss what it's like to access healthcare as a doctor and as a nurse and that aspect of accessing healthcare currently in the United States. There might be some useful tidbits for those who are not in healthcare, but also some thoughts about what you can do to kind of optimize how you access healthcare for you. Yes, lots of helpful tips to come later on people who may not otherwise know too much about exactly when and where to get certain screenings. Kind of the most interesting questions that we always get as healthcare workers, as a doctor and nurse is, do we make the best or worst patients? And uh, we'll go from there. What do you think? There's a inside joke that healthcare workers make the worst kind of patients out of everybody because I think one, because we think we know better. And two, we often are the people who do not get things checked out, even though we advise other people to get things checked out. And oftentimes the things we recommend to patients are not things we enforce ourselves. So it's a lot of uh, oxymorons. Yeah. I think we also tend to be more busy. And so the appointments and that the things that we need to try to schedule to see our dentist, see our eye doctors, and see our regular doctors often do not happen because yeah. of our busy schedules. Right. Another aspect of that is on like whose perspective are we talking about in terms of best or worst patients, like from the patient's perspective or from the people practicing medicine? So I guess from the perspective of being a doctor, treating someone who is also a doctor can be either very good or very bad. I don't it's know if It's zero or a hundred. Yeah. My favorite thing is when we do patient intake forms, there's a little box that says occupation. And most of the patients that I work with now are retired or close to retiring. And the people who go out of their way to specifically denote that like, oh, I was a nurse or I was a doctor, even though they're clearly retired, is always interesting to me because then you have the other half the population who worked in healthcare, but they wouldn't say anything unless you asked. Do you tell people that you are a nurse or in healthcare? When no, I think it would stress out the person who's working in the medical office. So unless I need to say something or speak up about something, I don't think there's any reason they need to know I'm a healthcare Unless it's worker. like relevant to the situation. Yeah, right? but I, I don't expect any special treatment or anything. I think for me, I would be a little bit more forthcoming about my occupation because it does provide stress. But I'd rather I think it'd be it a up, healthy stress. I think know? I'd rather it come up in conversation. I I think this is a really important regarding how to be a good doctor and how to have a productive meeting is that you need to be able to reach patients where they're at. And a lot of times that means they're educational level mm -hmm. right so like if i'm seeing someone for like you know this issue mm -hmm. it would be the best if you can describe the condition in a yeah. way that's understandable and that really goes to the education level of the person right so i think your knowledge speaks for itself though like you, you don't need so? to explicitly you know unless it's relevant or unless it makes sense i'm just thinking about the, all the instances when i was a new grad and the patient or the patient's parents were specifically working in healthcare and how much extra stress that caused for me, mm -hmm. especially because 
medicine is so broad. There are a million different specialties. If you are an expert in cardiology, you could still know nothing about the actual appointment that you're going to. And some people think that they have all this knowledge, even though they don't, which I think is really dangerous. Yes. And I think the other part is true. As a resident, I have assumed that somebody else who's a professional knows more than it can be dangerous because I think they know about something. And they don't want to say that they don't know. They're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. We assume each other that they know about this, but they actually don't. Right. So they end up missing information because I'm not explaining things like I normally would. Right, because you don't want to disrespect them by explaining when things that you feel like they, they should, should know. know, quote unquote. But also, we have no context. Like, you have no idea if this person has been practicing in the last 10 years or they worked for a year and they quit. But anyways, all of that can be very confusing. I always really appreciate the instances where, for example, when I was on a med surge unit in nursing school, we took care of a NICU nurse. And I remember her so specifically, she was on the bariatric surgery floor. And she was like, I'm a nurse, I can tell you anything you want to know about babies, but I know nothing about this and my surgery. So don't be shy, just tell me everything and take care of me like you would take care of any other patient. And that made me feel so safe. And because I felt so safe, I was able to provide the best care Mm -hmm. possible. Yeah. Right. So I think there is a way to be respectful and transparent. Like yeah. when you acknowledge what you know and you acknowledge the things you don't know. I think this is an important a pearl here that we should probably talk about is how do we best prepare for a doctor's appointment for anyone? Like if you're taking your self to go see a doctor and you had to wait a really long time for an appointment how can you maximize this appointment because you know it's it's hard to get and yeah. they have a limited time and let's talk a little bit about that so the way that american healthcare is there's hmo and ppo those are the two major types of health insurances you can have hmo is health maintenance organization mm-hmm. so those are things like kaiser and kind of they have their whole entire network of doctors and you can kind of only go to those doctors. Right. And the way that HMOs work is that let's say I needed to go to a specialist. Let's say I had some neurology problems and I wanted to go see a neurologist. You have to go see your PCP first and get a referral from them. Because the point of these programs are kind of to minimize waste and to use your primary care doctor as like a conduit because they should in theory know all about your health if you're like regularly seeing them and, and who they best treat. to direct yeah. you to to not re- waste resources yeah. right mm-hmm. ppo on the other hand stands for preferred provider organization so ppo is a little bit more i would say flexible if i wanted to go directly to a specialist this is something that you can do you can make your own appointment but regardless hmo ppo you have to usually wait a couple months and you have to be your own advocate for yeah your no one's gonna automatically it's not like the dentist where they're like okay every six months we'll just put you on the calendar you need to be a self-advocate so you're oftentimes waiting months and months before you get this appointment Mm -hmm. and preparing for the appointment i would say make sure you fill out all of your online paperwork have all your immunization cards if not uploaded to the portal bring them with you Uh, have a full list of the medications that you take the dose exactly when you take it just write it a lot of older folks i think is so cute they write it on this little business card and then their kids laminate it for them and they put it in their wallet highly recommend to do this more systematically what mickey's saying is number one is be prepared to have all the information that the doctor asks you of Mm -hmm. in a very easy to understand format because you probably don't know all the things that you've done yeah right so don't expect to go there and have them figure it out one of the biggest pitfalls when one of the patients like you have a computer you can look up my history it's in the chart but we don't unfortunately 
have things organized or connected in such a way for us to do that. Also, like I think people have this idea that all of the healthcare systems are connected. Yes, we do have something called Care Everywhere or different chart systems where it kind of pulls data from every single you know hospitalization you have, but that does not include some of the smaller yeah. clinics or you know local places that you might be going. So making sure that you always have that on hand and also it takes forever to dig that stuff yeah. up. So like. If you can think about it, if you can get 30 minutes with your doctor, how do you maximize your time with them, right? You don't want them to be Googling or searching stuff for your own records, right? You want them to be focused on Taking trying to figure out what how to take care of you, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to minimize the information where you're looking up information that you could have done so before. So something that really blew my mind was why are doctors always late for their appointments? And what I learned when I shadowed in school and stuff is that let's say your appointment is at 1 p.m. They typically don't come and grab you until at least 110, maybe 115. And yes, part of it is that they are probably running behind. But the other part is that let's say they give you a 30 minute slot. That 30 minute slot includes their time to review your chart and prepare for your visit before they speak to you. Mm-hmm. So for the first 10 minutes, they could be reading up, studying or preparing, you know, if you're doing a procedure, making sure that all that is ready. So I think it's really important to know that from the provider side, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily providing yeah. you less care. There's a lot of documentation that also needs to happen, which mm-hmm. can some of it be done at the end of the day. But, you know, there's some tests that need to be ordered and things yeah. like that. And oftentimes, you know, the length that you speak with the person can be longer than the time allotted. And if there's something important, then, you know, you can't really just tell people to stop talking. First aspect is to be really prepared. And I think the second aspect is just maximize the ability for communication. So I would really highly consider bringing someone else to your appointment so you can remember what's going on, take notes, or if it's with a family member that doesn't speak the language quite well, the office is legally provi- mm-hmm. required to provide an interpreter. And even if you think your English is fine, it's often sometimes better to have someone in case. They don't have to interpret every single thing that they said, but just in case that there are some things that can be missed, then mm-hmm. that is a good thing to do. I think the final thing is at the end of your visit, there has to be, it's not just a conversation, right? There's usually action plans. Yeah. Like you need to do one, two, and three. That's the most important thing because you know, that you talked about 15, 20 minutes about things. Okay, the doctor understands those things, but something needs to come out of that. But make mm-hmm. sure that you have a concrete plan and you understand the plan. They usually print you a little after-visit summary that'll give you a comprehensive idea of what new prescriptions you have, what next appointment you need. But if that's not the case, make and sure you you're should clear. ask, yes. I think it's really important to ask about how much things cost. Sometimes even the physicians might not know, but they can ask their assistant to check with your insurance and things like that. But being transparent about your financial situation and what you can do does sometimes change what kind of care is appropriate, which sounds a little bit sketchy, but is impactful. And as sketchy as it sounds, the way that healthcare works is that there's billing codes and there are a lot of codes that do similar things, but are priced at different price points. Mm -hmm. And if you are more transparent about your situation, when someone can help you, they will in most cases. And sometimes there's like superfluous things that may have come. So for example, let's say that you need to require a specialist care. Like let's say your ankle looks 
not great. You've had a lot of pain and you mm-hmm. need to see like an orthopedic doctor for that. Your primary care doctor may scan you or do a bunch of tests, but mm-hmm. if they're already referring you to the specialist, there's ways like maybe they'll order more tests or the tests are not exactly the ones that you want to order. Sometimes you get extra stuff that you don't need. So it's double the sure, amount of bills, most yeah, importantly. So you, need to make sh- you should make sure that the things that are required are actually required. Those are kind of the main points. So can we talk about the way American health insurance works? Because I did not understand this really until I started getting my own health insurance when I got my first job. And I think it's still something that's very mysterious. Again, we're not experts in this, but the general idea is that if you have an employer, typically they will have a health insurance plan. And there's usually a couple of different plans you can choose from. You pay a monthly premium. And this monthly premium is simply to be eligible to receive healthcare, which is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. And there are certain states, California, for example, where when you do not have health insurance, oftentimes because you can't afford it, you are fined for not having health insurance. So it works against you. So there are typically a a handful of things that are covered annually. This typically involves one set of lab work. So blood draws and just like baseline labs. It also includes a PCP visit or annual visit. wellness exam. That's usually really the the majority of thing that is covered. So you pay the monthly premium and that's your eligibility for healthcare. And then there's a there's a copay. So the copay is the amount that you need to pay to your provider upfront just for seeing them before even doing anything. So for example, if I were to go see a neurologist, the sometimes it might be like $50. And some people might be saying, oh, I have an HSA card. What does that do? So a lot of the times employers will contribute a certain amount into your HSA, your health savings account. There's no tax associated with the HSA. So when your employer contributes or if you decide to contribute extra, you're not getting taxed on that amount that's growing at all. But you have to use it for health care. Yes. And it's essentially like a debit card that you can use. So you can use it for copays. You can use it when you go to the pharmacy. There are even some grayer lines where you could technically use it for things like a massage in a PT aspect or skincare products from a derm perspective. Let me just summarize that a little bit more. So there's like three different ways that you have to kind of pay for things. There's a monthly cost to be able to access insurance. There's also this term called the deductible where before you reach that amount of dollars, that you're paying for healthcare, you kind of have to pay for it yourself. And yes. any dollar amount that you pay more than that, your insurance will cover for you. You have to pay up to the deductible in order for any health insurance to kick in. And you're wondering how high that deductible is. You think it's like, oh, 300, 400 bucks. No, it's usually like 2,000, 5,000, 10,000. It's yeah. yeah, depending on how good your insurance plan is, depending on how much you're paying each month, that number can vary. So it's not like once you hit the deductible, then you can just free reign and use all of your health care with out any worries, you still have to keep in consideration because you're still paying a percentage of your healthcare costs. And this all resets at the end of each year. So that's why a lot of people try to get all of their healthcare things done within the same year and then not use it certain years. That's why the doctors are often really busy at the during, end of the year. At the end of the year, like yeah. in December. So if you want an end of the year appointment, make sure you book those early. Once you hit your deductible, then your insurance kicks in. And then there's a concept of co-insurance, mm-hmm. which means, which is usually a percentage, at least in the, my health insurance. But I'll give you an example where if it's an in-network provider, which is a provider that is recognized by the health insurance and mm-hmm. it will pay 
then I have to pay 15% coinsurance. So the insurance will pay 85% of those costs, and then you still have to out-of-pocket 15%. 15%. If you're out of network, which means it's a provider that's not recognized by the healthcare. Or it's not preferred. Not preferred, then you have to pay more money. And then and what does that percentage look you, like? It says 40% for me. So let's say... So much higher. So if you have a test, such as an x-ray or blood work, you have 15% coinsurance. If it's out of network, then it's 40%. You should look at your own health insurance card, but... There's usually a chart that summarizes all these things. So you're paying this coinsurance, right? The portion that is not covered by your insurance. And let's say you use a lot of healthcare. Then you will hit something called the out-of-pocket maximum. So this is, in theory, the maximum amount that you should have to pay for healthcare in a year. And this number can be quite high depending on what kind of health insurance you have. There's actually a really cool example. Let me just go over this to see how much you would end up paying if you have to do something. So this example is Peg is having a baby. This will cover nine months of in-network prenatal care in the hospital delivery. Plan's overall deductible is $1,500. The specialist coinsurance is 15%, which means seeing the OBGYN doing all the prenatal care. So that's the coinsurance. The hospital facility fee for when you have the baby is also 15% coinsurance. And everything else we'll say is in network. So it's a 15% coinsurance for all the other payments. So the total cost of apparently this is $12,700. Mm-hmm. So that means you have to pay the first $1,500, right? Because to reach your deductible. And then you have to pay 15% of all the dollars from $1,500 to 12000 700. So you end up having to pay 3000. Wait, why? What's your out-of-pocket maximum? It's more than 4000. You're only okay. paying 15% of that money. So you haven't reached your out-of-pocket maximum, which is $4,000. Right. So yeah. then you would continue to pay your 15%, assuming your provider's in network until yes. the end of the year. Anyways, having a baby, even with insurance, costs a couple thousand dollars at least yeah. on this network. And if you're wondering how to know whether a provider is in network or out of network, this is also incredibly ambiguous. It's it not like changes. there's this universal website where you can just go and look up like, hey, who's in network with who? Who's well, friends with the who? Whole, the whole thing is that they're big companies that talk to each other, right? Connections, and that can change year to year as well. Basically, Mickey is kind of angry about this whole situation, which is why she's so passionate about this. It's a whole big mess of what's going on. And this is only half the side of the question. So I I guess I'll spend two minutes talking about, I'm still learning about this as I am three years away from being an attending, but Mm -hmm. this is all money that goes into the part that that should be paying physicians and the healthcare workers, Mm -hmm. right? So how do doctors get paid from this? Imagine that there's this giant pot, basically, of all the dollars that the insurance companies and the people have paid in there. How do you distribute it back to the doctors? And so this is kind of related back to our point about billing codes. And so doctors will put codes based on how they treated the patients. Mm -hmm. And basically, each code is uh, corresponds to like a unit of how much work that they put in, and that corresponds to a dollar amount. And basically, the doctors get paid through that way. Every procedure has more than one code oftentimes, and so being able to understand how to do that as a doctor is really important. And sometimes it can be beneficial to the patients if they bill things in a particular way mm-hmm. that can benefit how much the insurance company is charging you. So right. going back to her point, it's important to be financially transparent about you know your situation and sometimes you know doctors can help you very complicated i don't know if any of those things kicked in to your brain but hopefully one or two things you're able to understand all right on to a little bit more exciting topic outside of 
the finances of being a healthcare professional. How do you feel about doctors prescribing medications to friends and family? It depends what the medication is and what the indication of the medication is. So I think it's totally okay for you to prescribe, let's say, antibiotics for somebody who clearly has a UTI or, I don't know, a superficial skin infection, something that's clearly and easily resolvable. And even if something were to grow, go wrong, quote unquote, there would be no crazy negative side effects Um, you have to be responsible for the medications that you prescribe if it were my license i would never prescribe controlled substances narcotics to myself or anybody around me if it's like an obvious medical need for something Mm -hmm. then i think it's appropriate like no one's gonna ding you for that well the same way that somebody who is well versed in computers would probably fix your computer pro bono it's it's kind of the same idea of this is the kind of string that we Mm -hmm. can help pull in healthcare. kind of along the same lines of seeing a doctor there are some benefits of actually being a healthcare professional in this Mm -hmm. business and i want to talk about kind of the waiting period sometimes that's necessary to see a doctor and what it means yes it's often very difficult takes a couple months to see someone sometimes like things are more urgent i would say like if you don't get seen within a couple months the thing that you were wanting to be seen either gets better or it's like way worse some things are very specific like for example a melanoma needs to be seen within x number of weeks like anything cancer or right. things like that should be taken care of you know in the order of days to weeks right right so Versus- the way that appointment systems work yes there is a little leeway to kind of move people or shift people and kind of prioritize but it's also a little bit dangerous because the people who are scheduling these things are not medical experts it's hard for them to understand like oh this person needs to be seen today versus oh that can wait that's fine being a doctor like if you have the connections like let's say you worked with some other doctor like you talk you can directly reach them and tell them that oh this person should probably be seen sooner it's kind of unfair but these connections often will let you have people be seen sooner well with any field right there's if you know someone you know someone it makes things a little bit easier if you have a connection you know this is true about any field and unfortunately it's also true about healthcare. like if one of our friends were to tell us hey i really need an appointment within your specialty of course we're going to do everything we can to get them an appointment as soon as possible and also ensure they receive the best treatment that they can well along the same lines this is another question that is brought up if you are a foremost expert in this field and like let's say you're a heart surgeon or something Mm -hmm. and your your friend or your own child needs the surgery that you are the best in the world to do would you operate on your own child not on my own child no why well, I guess it really depends like you're what the, the best, procedure is. You're, it has a pretty high mortality rate. I've been the best forever. You are. I mean, you. I'm newly you, the best, or I've been the best. You think you are the best, right? I think I'm the best, so I'm not objectively oh the best. Gosh, but- I don't think I would ever operate on my own family members because, in the off chance that anything things. goes wrong i would never be able to live with myself and number two i can't a hundred percent guarantee that my emotions won't cloud. flood me and cloud my judgment when things let's say don't go right or if something were to happen after the fact so who would you have do the procedure then a trusted colleague but what if they number two up? in the world since clearly number i was number one world. 
is that do you think that's better do you think they would be less stressed or it would be a similar no they would obviously be incredibly stressed but it would certainly be better than me doing it would you do it i don't think so i think it would be i would do it if it was like a bedside procedure like something easy but nothing crazy like heart surgery but even something simple let's say that they need to like an excision that's fine tonsils out or your appendix out or some like yeah you can take our kids tonsils out that's fine really yeah you don't feel comfortable taking their tonsils out you wouldn't take their appendix out i don't know i feel that if i was an oral surgeon i would take my kids wisdom teeth out i mean that has like but i think it's a little less less, yeah you don't have to put the patient under yeah i think when you put them under then you assume higher risk right because you're breathing for them yes or maybe if if somebody else who was also qualified was also in the room i would feel better we're just talking about exceptions to the rule like you know we should treat every patient like our family are with mm-hmm. the most care, but doctors are humans too. So it's impossible to take that out of the equation. I think healthcare is really difficult because it's customer service on steroids and a lot of people treat the hospital like a hotel and think that people should be at their service, which of course, we're going to do our best to maintain good bedside manner and give you the best care that we can. But we're also very human. And when you treat us poorly, even if I don't want it to affect the way my care is given to you, it probably will, right? Because if you're really mean to me, it's I'm probably less likely to go into the patient room and check on how you're doing. It'll inevitably affect the care. Mm-hmm. So I, I always tell people, if you can just think about how you would want to be treated if you got no sleep, you have to stand all day, don't get to eat. It is not an easy job and just having an ounce of sympathy will go so far. Yeah. Buy your, if you're in the hospital, have your family buy some cookies for the unit, for the nurses. It might go a long ways. Life has it really does it's never expected but it's always appreciated all right another interesting topic in the minds of the mental health aspect it's often talked about in like the tv shows it's called factitious disorder or called munchausen syndrome i think it's fascinating in a negative way so how to explain this this is kind of a psychological disease in which people purposefully manipulate their own health or cause their own health issues so mm-hmm. they can get uh, attention, attention affection, affection and healthcare personnel's like to, to, you know to worry about them and the highest prevalence of people with this disease is often healthcare workers themselves because they understand the system and so a, a very common way that this happens is people without diabetes injecting themselves with insulin and causing like hypoglycemia and just things that only really healthcare workers could have access to to cause you know symptoms and so i think this is interesting topic because if this happens you know at the hospital i've had a couple patients patients who had this phenomenon but it's a diagnosis of exclusion right meaning that we really have to as as a doctor we have to really exhaust all other everything else else before we can blame the patient that they're doing it to themselves and yeah i think if you've ever watched Grey's anatomy or any of the medical shows they show a lot of examples of something like this sometimes in the form of mountausen by proxy i think the most common case is probably a parent inflicting yeah a caretaker inflicting damage to their own child or somebody around them they they have more attention and to kind of justify the kind of the difficulty that they have to go through i have seen this in real life in a pediatric unit and it is terrifying but also they were the kindest sweetest people and it's it's not like they're really doing this on purpose the intention is 
often just coming from a place of needing love and care, but the execution is obviously very wrong and very scary. I mean, the health implications, some of these things cannot be reversed, Mm -hmm. right? So let's say that you're in your personal life and you're at a party and somebody is like realizes that you're a nurse or a healthcare professional or a doctor and they're like trying to ask you for advice. What do you do in those situations? It depends what they're asking me advice about. I can give general advice like, yeah, you should get your mammogram when you turn 50 years old, but I, I'm i not going to give like specific, hey, you should be taking this medication or considering this, considering that. So we call those things kind of called curbside um, consults. consults where it's not like an official consultation, like you're not seeing the patient oftentimes. Mm-hmm. You're just providing generalized advice. The The way that I would frame it is like, oh, if I were this patient and these are all the information I would know, this is kind of what I would do rather than framing it in terms of the other person's specific diagnosis. It's kind of hard. Like, you know, if you're a car mechanic or something else and somebody asked you, oh, well, my car is messed up. Can you give me advice? It seems like, like, of course they would like Help. be happy to help you but with healthcare it's a little bit tricky mm. it's a little bit more high stakes i think we're always willing to help when we can a lot of the times we simply do not have the answers and we can point you in the right direction but even within medicine again there's so yeah. many subspecialties i don't have expertise in many areas oftentimes kind of the funny quote is like oh you should probably get that checked out <laughs> yeah for real like if i had that i would go check get it checked out since you mentioned it talked about mammograms What sort of things should people be doing for their preventative health, like things that they should be doing every year or by the time they're X number of age? Every country has their own guidelines, but in the U.S., we have something called USPSTF. This is the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. It's a mouthful. This is a website that has the guidelines on the recommendations for preventative care. So at baseline, for a normal, young, healthy person, you should, in theory, see your PCP or your OBGYN once a year and get a set of labs. This is typically included with your health insurance, and you can always double check with the front desk people when you check in. Please check out the website before you follow these exact guidelines that we're about to share with you. Or just discuss with your physician yourself. These guidelines change all the time, so make sure you are staying up to date. Your provider should, in theory, be keeping tabs on all of this. So pap smears, this is probably the most common question. You are, the USPSTF recommends that you start at age 21 and between 21 and 29, you should get one every three years. Now, once you hit 30, between 30 to 65, they recommend that you either do it every three years with cervical cytology alone or every five years with high-risk human papillomavirus HRHPV testing alone. But basically, if you didn't get that, when you turn 21, you should probably go and check out a, have an OBGYN visit. And then Mm -hmm. at that point, they can kind of gear you towards the successful way of screening for things. Yes, absolutely. Mammograms. So generally, you should start between 40 to 50, but talk to your provider. If you have risk factors, such as having a first generation family member who has breast cancer. Yes. But if you're you're concerned, you should know who you are and you should talk to your doctors earlier. Mm -hmm. Colonoscopy. So the guidelines for this have has recently changed. Dr. Chang, per Dr. Austin Chang's TikTok, I think it changed from 50 to 45, your first one. Yes, correct. So There's to summarize, lot. 21 for pap smears, 40 to 50 for mammograms, 65 for the bone scan. 
these and are all women's health things that yes. Mickey's cares about that she's worried she has it on her calendar it's on my calendar and then you need like uh what is there anything else that you need a colonoscopy starting 45 okay those are things that Mickey has down on her calendar yes that she's looking forward to these preventative care things are are typically uh, covered, covered in, your health, in insurance. your health insurance because they're the, nationally recommended yeah. All right, so we covered that topic. Hopefully, we've made some public health changes. We've convinced some people to go see a doctor. Anyways, this is the all the all the content that I have prepared for this episode. The the takeaway points is that you know healthcare is is a difficult monster to access if you are in healthcare or not in healthcare. But mm-hmm. there are definitely ways in which you can stay informed to be the best advocate for yourself and for your family members. Yeah. And don't be afraid to ask questions. You're not alone. Make sure to get the preventative care that you can. It will save you a lot of money in the long run when you catch things early. And again, most of that is included in your health insurance. So And make sure you understand what you signed up for, for your health insurance. Yes, very important. And if you don't have health insurance, there are a lot of government subsidized programs. So look into those because even just one hospital visit will be enough to set you back a lot. Yeah. And that's a wrap. We'll see you guys next week.